Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context, and I am speaking to Stephen Wormiel. Can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit about yourself? Sure, I currently teach constitutional law uh, at American University Washington College of Law in Washington, D.C. I've been there for about 23 years in different roles. Um, taught a few other places before that, but I was a journalist for 20 years before I became a law professor, and I covered the Supreme Court for the Wall Street Journal for 12 years. And then before that, did other things for the Boston Globe for about eight years. Um, so I'm lucky enough to have had two careers of my own choosing, um, and I, I appreciate that very much. Was it your goal to be a journalist when you were starting out college, or did you have intentions of getting into law? Or... My goal from an early age had been to be a lawyer, um, and then... I got into journalism in high school, college, didn't really like being a student, so didn't really want to go to law school right away, um, and, and got a summer internship at the Boston Globe, and uh, I don't know how people feel about their own jobs and their professions, but I didn't know whether I was a good journalist um, until I succeeded in my summer internship at the Boston Globe, and then I said, hey, this is amazing, and they pay you to do this, too. <laughs> Boston Globe's one of the more reputable newspapers, so it's if you make it there, you definitely have a, a knack for what you were doing. What... Well, I eventually went to law school at night at American, where I now teach, and, um, and then uh, in uh, exactly 30 years ago, made the jump to law teaching. Got it. What was it... Um... That attracted you to law to begin with when you were a kid? Um, it's, you know, as nerdy as can be. My father gave me a, a book about the Supreme Court when I was about 10 or 11 called This Honorable Court, and I was fascinated by it. And I, and I read a biography of Clarence Darrow and was fascinated by that, and I just, just thought law seemed so interesting. Would you... Uh since the, the primary topic that I, I brought you on for is, is about the Supreme Court. Is that one of those goals that you would have loved to have or, or still have uh, an interest in being? I mean, I'm guessing that's kind of one of the reasons why most people get into law is to hopefully have an opportunity to, to sit on the Supreme Court. You know, there are only a few jobs in which you can get up every morning and go to the Supreme Court. And I had one of them. I had a <laughs> cubicle in the press room for 12 years, and I went to the Supreme Court every day. And I used to say jokingly, uh, when I left to, be, to become a law professor, I would say two things. One, if the president nominated me, I would accept. And two was if the New York Times called and asked me to become their Supreme Court reporter, I would accept. Um, <laughs> But no, I didn't. I didn't really aspire to be a justice. I'm fascinated by everything about the institution, how it works, its people, its decisions, its impact. So let's let's kind of jump into that a little bit. Um, 
I kind of feel that we're we're in a situation with our youth educationally that uh, I think civics are, are kind of slightly being overlooked, to, to say lightly. Um, so starting with the very basics, what's the, the actual purpose of the Supreme Court? So I, first of all, I agree completely that um, we we are severely lacking in civics. Um, uh, I helped uh, a good friend and colleague um, now about 20 years ago create something called the Marshall Brennan Constitutional Literacy Project, where we have law students who teach constitutional rights to public high school students in D.C., and we've exported it to about 18 other law schools around the country. So, um, you know, I think we're only making a tiny difference, but but it's at least something trying to bridge that gap. Um, the, the Supreme Court, when it was created, uh, it, when the Constitution was written, had a kind of undefined role. Um, um, the, the commentators at the time, Alexander Hamilton, the famous, the famous star of <laughs> Hamilton, had he only known, um, uh, said it would be the least dangerous branch because it didn't have its own army and it didn't have its own power of the purse. Um, you know, it didn't, it didn't have its own money to spend and it didn't have an army to disperse, to fight battles. And it wasn't until 1803 um, you know, it's one of the, I don't like to use a lot of case names, but the case of Marbury versus Madison maybe is, is one of the best known cases in, in the 230 plus years of the Constitution. And in that case, the Supreme Court, uh, famous Chief Justice John Marshall basically carved out a role for the court. Um, he, he took it unto himself to say that what the Supreme Court can do is declare the actions of the executive branch, the president, and the legislative branch, the Congress, unconstitutional, that the Supreme Court could strike down those actions. That was not clear in the Constitution itself. So in a sense, it's really not till 1803 that we begin to see the you know the now profound role that the court plays first emerging. Would you agree with Hamilton's assessment that it was the less dangerous of the three? Was or is? I guess, uh, <laughs> given the current climate, um, we'll go with is. <laughs> um, I think it has become an extremely powerful institution um and and i don't think anybody would describe it as the least dangerous branch anymore um a lot of it depends on how on your perspective on how it uses that power and sort of where you're coming from you know it's a it's a almost a sporting <laughs> activity to say the supreme court is exceeding its authority when you don't like what they're doing and to applaud them, even though they're exceeding their authority when you do like what they're doing. Right. I mean, that seems to be a recurring theme with almost anything, especially considering politics. Right. Um, there, there's a lot of different 
ways that I want to branch off, but I'm going to try and wrangle this into a couple of sections. Um, how does the, the system itself function? How do how does a case go from, you know, hypothetically me suing you and getting it into the Supreme Court? So, um, first of all, it's important to know that it is a very rarefied atmosphere up there. The air is thin. Um, uh, you have much more chance of getting struck by lightning than um, having your case heard by the Supreme Court. Uh, I don't know if that's actually statistically true, <laughs> but it feels that way. Um, so, so you file a lawsuit. It could be in state court. It could be in federal court. All 50 states have their own court system. Um, and then we have a federal court system that spans the entire country. And where you start out depends to some degree on the nature of the issue and, um, you know, what the laws are that, that are involved in your, in your claim. Eventually, you get a decision of some kind from an appeals court, either the Supreme Court of the state or a federal appeals court, which are they're divided into regions. We have um, 11, 12 regional appeals courts, and they're numbered 1 through 11 plus D.C., uh, and then there's a specialized federal appeals court also in D.C., so there are actually 13, but uh, 12 that are regional. Um, let's stick with the federal appeals courts for now. Uh, you lose in the federal appeals court. They typically issue an opinion in a three-judge panel. Um, and you file, typically we say, I'm going to appeal to the Supreme Court. What you're technically doing is filing what's called a petition for a writ of certiorari. Um, certiorari is a Latin word that means to make certain. So your, your, your appeal to the Supreme Court is actually a petition to the Supreme Court to make certain. Um, you file yours, the, whoever you, you lost to in the appeals court files an opposite, a brief in opposition. Um, interest groups can file friend of the court briefs called amicus curiae briefs, Latin for friend of the court. And then the Supreme Court will decide whether to hear the case or not. Even though there are nine justices, it only takes four votes for the court to agree to hear a case. So less than a majority can get the case put on the court's docket. Is that and based, that's, sorry? Is that based off the initial quorum that was labeled back? way back in the 1780s? No, it's, it, it actually comes out of a deal that um, the, the former president and then Chief Justice of the United States, William Howard Taft, the only person who was both president and then Chief Justice, he made a deal with Congress that the, the court felt that it, there, there were too many cases that fell into a category of issues that the court had to hear. It didn't have any discretion. And so Taft made a deal that if you give us more discretion over which cases to hear, we'll promise to use this rule of four, as it's known. Got it. In other words, we'll make it easier to get your case granted um, by saying it only takes four instead of a majority. Got it. Going from the fact that there was initially six, um, 
there's been movement up to 10 at one point, um, but down to where we sit now at nine. What are your thoughts on the recurring theme that's been coming up over the last eight, 10 months or so, a uh, year, about expanding the court? Good, bad? I think it's a bad idea. Um, the size of the court has not changed now since 1869. The Judiciary Act of 1869 settled on nine. I mean, I, I, it's worth backing up for a second and mentioning that while the Constitution creates a Supreme Court, it doesn't create the number of justices. So Congress gets to decide the number of justices, and it can and has changed it over the years. Um, as you said, it went up to 10, it was 5, it was 6, it was 9, it was 10. Um, um, so Congress does have that power. What Congress can't do is take a seat away from somebody that's sitting in it because the Constitution says the justices are appointed for life. So when Justice Scalia died in 2016, if Congress had wanted to reduce the size of the court to eight instead of filling the vacancy, they could have done that. Um, uh, they have that power. The, you know, I, I believe that it is very important for the court to be independent of uh, the the power of the other branches, that, that it's important that the other branches not be able to tell the court what to do or how to decide cases. And so if you change the size of the court every time you don't like the direction that it's going in, and you change it in order to alter the outcomes, um, then I think you're compromising that independence. You're, you're basically saying, okay, Biden doesn't want to lose cases. Right now he's, he's at a six to three deficit. Um, so if we appoint five new justices, create five new seats, and he appoints five new justices, he'll be winning eight to six. Um, and, and, you know, that's nice for Biden, but then the next Republican Congress or Republican president says, well, we're going to appoint three more and it'll be nine to eight. But then it becomes uh, tit for tat. Yeah. Yeah. Then eventually it's the size of Congress, which we see doesn't work so well. Um, um, so I, you know, I, I don't like it for the judicial independence point. Um, I also, even though I think the, the Republican Senate majority has done some pretty um, unfair, I'll be polite and say unfair things um, with the Supreme Court in the last few years. Um, I, you know, I believe that the president and the Senate get to determine the makeup of the Supreme Court. And, um, uh, you know, regardless of my personal views, it's not always going to go my way. Um, and, and, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I, I live for another day when maybe it swings back the other way. So there's, I was talking to my kid, he's a, a sophomore in high school, and I asked him if he had any questions that he'd like to have answered. And so I'm going to throw this question at you, and I, I know it's kind of going to be a little, probably doesn't have an answer. Um, but how can we reduce the influence of the duopoly 
that the duopoly has on the court if the justices are supposed to just simply uphold the Constitution. And as you just kind of talked about, you know, judicial independence, um, how, how does that all come to play? Um, you're right. It doesn't really have an answer, <laughs> but happy to talk about it. Um, there, well, first of all, you know, I, I, this is self-evident, but I'll say it anyway. I mean, you're talking to me. I'm one person with one set of views about the court. And as you know, and, and maybe have had other guests, there are lots of other ways to think about the court and lots of other takes on the court. Um, I believe in the court as an institution, and I believe that it strives one justice by one justice to, to do what those justices think is the right outcome as to the Constitution. Sometimes it's hard to see it that way. Sometimes it seems overtly political. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, I think that challenges my faith in the institution. Um, what I hope for, what I think you can ask of a justice, conservative or liberal, is that they try to connect the dots of their own decision-making from one case to the next so that it's not whack-a-mole. <laughs> it's, you know, I may not like the principle that a particular justice is pursuing, but I would respect that that justice is trying to go from point A to point B using the same principle and, and and trying to have some consistent judicial philosophy. Now, I have many friends and colleagues who would say, okay, you just heard Wormiel at his most naive. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's true. I don't buy that, but maybe that's true. I'm just to kind of throw my little thought out there. I'm a firm believer that everybody is entitled to their opinion, but not every opinion carries the same weight. So obviously you, you've been around it. You're, you're excruciatingly knowledgeable on this topic. So your, your opinion holds a little more value than, you know, say the average citizen. What, if any, are there, are the requirements to get a nomination? Is there any set standards or um, anything in writing that says you need to have X, Y, and Z to be even considered to be a justice? No, not really. Um, you actually don't even have to be a lawyer, although nowadays they all are. But but um, uh, in earlier periods, there were some who hadn't gone to law school. They'd studied law, you know, under a, a tutor or or a mentor. Um, but but it's not. There's no legal requirement that you even be a lawyer. Um, as a practical matter, today, uh, and this probably dates back, maybe dates back to 1987, the very controversial nomination of Judge Robert Bork by, by Ronald Reagan. Um, since then, the norm has been, with a couple of exceptions, that everybody appointed is a sitting federal appeals court judge. Elena Kagan, who's currently on the court, I think is the only exception to that. Sandra Day O'Connor was not. 
Um, but the reason for that is that the White House can look at the opinions of the appeals court judge and study them and try to take the measure of the of the potential nominee and say, okay, this person has the judicial philosophy I'm looking for or or doesn't. Um, and so we've fallen into this this pattern of um, almost everybody being a federal appeals court judge. Speaking of controversial, there's <laughs> there's a big big area I can jump into that. But for for now, um, what was so controversial about the the Bork appointment? So it's a it's a theme that I think not quite as as um, headline grabbing but that we've seen repeated in, in, in a number of instances. And that is um, Bork was nominated by Ronald Reagan in 1987 when Justice Lewis Powell retired. Justice Lewis Powell was kind of the moderate Republican center of the court. Uh, you could go from, he, he joined the court in 1972 and retired in 87. And in that 15 years, Almost every five to four decision, Powell was the the vote that made the difference, which, you know, if he went liberal, it was a five to four liberal decision. If he went conservative, it was a five to four conservative decision in, in divided cases. Um, and so um, the Democrats controlled the Senate. The Republicans controlled the White House. Bork was a very um, fiery uh, incredibly strong conservative intellectual, and the 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 issue was would he tip the balance of the court dramatically in a conservative direction in a way that a Democratic Senate was not going to allow to happen, and so they picked apart all of his writings as a judge and as a law professor, um, all of his prior experiences. Um, and and defeated the nomination. Um, you kind of just spoke about some of the things that they dissected for him and ultimately led to the decision not to confirm him. From your personal perspective, what kind of things would you like to see if there if they were to put up a list of um, like a criteria? What what kind of experience should somebody have to sit on the highest court? I mean, I think it it. it is good to have um, Supreme Court justices who have judicial experience, but it might not be a bad thing to have Supreme Court justices who also have legislative experience. A lot of what they do is review laws passed by Congress and laws passed by states. And um, there may be times when they're lacking perspective on how the legislature really works, practical perspective. Um, I think that would be, I mean, I think O'Connor was the last nominee who had some legislative experience. She'd been in the Arizona state legislature. Um, everybody else has pretty much had more judicial than any other kind of experience. So, so I think that's one criterion. Um, I, you know, it's very hard to figure out how to get at this. But I'd like to see nominees who um, genuinely don't have an agenda. <laughs> um, 
and and that's almost that's become almost impossible. I mean, if they have an agenda, they won't tell you. Um, and if they told you, they probably wouldn't get confirmed. Right. So um, you know, it's very difficult to do. But but um, you know, I I I'd like to see nominees who can honestly and sincerely say I'm trying to approach these cases with an open mind based on the facts and arguments of the case before me, and I'm not here to overrule this or reaffirm that. You kind of touched on a little earlier with um, some of the appointments that have gone on over the last couple of years from my perspective, and I... Politically, I, I do find myself very centered. I, I think that there are some things Republicans push that are good. I think there are some things Democrats push that are good. I think both sides have their flaws, as all humans do. Um, but I think some of the the actions by the Republicans over the last three to four years have been, and actually a little longer than that, have been just insanely hypocritical. Um, there's been, I mean, statements... They're just blatantly hypocritical. Directly contradictory of one another. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on appointments and confirmations that occurred during the final or an election year of a president? I mean, I, there is no rule. All this nonsense about the Biden rule is just political rhetoric. There is no rule... You know, Biden didn't have the power to make a rule. And if he made one, anybody who wanted to could ignore it. Um, so the idea that you won't confirm somebody in a presidential election year because of the Biden rule is just silly. Um, I think that the rush to confirm Amy Coney Barrett was kind of unseemly. Um, I think they had the right to do it. I don't think they violated the Constitution by mm -hmm. doing it. Um, but but I think it it, um, it was bad for the sort of appearance of the court being non-political. Um, I think the refusal to to act on the nomination of Merrick Garland by President Obama in 2016 after Justice Scalia died was was just outrageous and reprehensible. Um, there was really no excuse for that other than politics. And, uh, you know, to get up and make speeches on the Senate floor about how we have to preserve the Supreme Court so that it doesn't become an overtly political institution and then say, let's, let's make sure we can be as overtly political as humanly possible in putting the people on the court just doesn't work. I mean, you know, I mean... It's like a dictionary picture of hypocrisy. Yeah, I, I think the, the confirmation or the denial of the confirmation for Obama's pick, they specifically said the people are designing a new president. I mean, McConnell flat out said, you know, we're going to wait. But similar thing happened with Amy Coney Barrett where the end of Obama's turn or uh, Trump's turn, and he, like you said, rushed it. So it... I, I get very frustrated with the the blatant hypocrisy. <laughs> I agree totally. Um, and, and you know, but that said, I will say that I think all three Trump nominees are perfectly well qualified to be on the court. Um, whether I will agree with anything they do or not, 
uh, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett are smart, capable, thoughtful, intelligent people with with good judicial experience. Um, and you know they 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 were not bad nominees. It's just that the process was extremely tainted. Agreed. What are your thoughts on term limits? I know the Constitution says that it's a for life, but um, and many have retired, uh, and a number have passed while sitting on the bench. What are your thoughts to perhaps making an amendment that has a minimum a mandatory retirement age of sixty? Uh, what is it, seventy years and six months? I'm not crazy about the idea. I'm not totally opposed to a, a tenure. Um, I don't like the idea of 18 years. I think 18 years is probably too short. Um, I might go for something like 25 years if you were going to impose a, a term limit. Um, the the Choosing an age limit rather than a tenure uh, you know, length of service limit. Um, I, I think we've had many very great justices who were kind of hitting their stride at age 70. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, some of those served too long, no question, <laughs> but, but not at 70 or 71 or 72. It was when they were 80 and 81 and 83 and 86 and so on that I think they, they maybe had overstayed their welcome, but um, I think we'd lose a lot of experience and wisdom and brain power if we either set a you know 70 years plus or 18 years of, of tenure limit. Separate question as to whether you can do that without amending <laughs> the Constitution. Right. Um, and I don't think you can, but. My understanding of, of the Supreme Court is to basically establish case law. Can, can you kind of elaborate as to what exactly case law is and why it's so important? Yeah, that's a hard question because it varies from circumstance to circumstance. Um, let's take the easier, in some ways, easier cases. One of the things the Supreme Court does a lot of is say, well, let me back up one step. It's important to remember that the Supreme Court doesn't reach out and grab issues to decide. It has to wait for the issues to come to the court. Mm -hmm. um, so there are many things the court might be interested in that don't get there. Um, but one of the things the court does a lot of is looking at um, ambiguities or uncertainties or conflicts over laws passed by Congress. And it, they can be very minute disagreements. You, you know, you put the comma here instead of there, and that changes the meaning. Uh, and one federal appeals court thought it changed the meaning one way, and another federal appeals court thought it changed the meaning in a different way. And the court believes that there needs to be uniformity of federal law, and, and so they have to decide those cases. You want them to do that in a consistent manner. That, that Case law in that sense is saying we've laid down a set of principles about how to, how to read the congressional language. 
and and you know when we're dealing with the placement of punctuation we interpret it one way when we're dealing with the meaning of particular words we we do that in another way but we ought to be consistent from how we read this law to how we read that law to how we read the next law in terms of our approach it doesn't mean we'll always agree but we ought to be agreed about about the mechanics of how we go about it and so case law means we go from one case to the next case um, building on the the rule of the first case uh, in the second case and, and so on in constitutional terms it's much harder and justices have had very varying views about this but um, I, I wrote the official biography of Justice William Brennan, who was on the court from 1956 to 1990, and he would say that he took an oath to uphold the Constitution, and that that oath meant that if he thought the court before him had gotten a constitutional question wrong, that he had an obligation to rethink that issue, um, and and not necessarily now and not in a vacuum. I mean, if he thought the court before him had gotten the constitutional question wrong, but it's been that way now for 50 years, and there's, everybody's relying on it, and and so on, then then maybe you're not as free to say I would change our interpretation. But he would. The general principle would be that, that when it comes to the Constitution, you as a justice have an obligation to read it your way. That kind of jumps into one of the questions and topics I wanted to get into. Uh, in December, there's essentially going to be a, a challenge of Roe v. Wade, uh, if I recall correctly. It's coming from Mississippi law. Right. What are your thoughts on? how either you think that might play out, and I understand this is hypothetical, and there's a lot of factors in play. Um, but what are your, your thoughts on, on Roe v. Wade to begin with and what might take place over the next eight months or so? Um, a few thoughts. Um, first of all, in, a, in the abstract, not how that case is going to come out, there clearly, I think, unambiguously, unquestionably, are six justices on the current Supreme Court who would not have decided Roe versus Wade the way it was decided in 1973. Right. Um, that that might or might not be the same question about whether it will be overruled, <laughs> and that goes back to the point we were just discussing about right. do you do you how much do you feel bound by precedent and how much do you feel free to, to say, I think they got it wrong in 1973 and, and I need to say so. Um, so the Mississippi case is a little complicated. It, Mississippi passed a law that said no abortions after 15 weeks. The current state of the Supreme Court's interpretation of abortion rights is that you pretty much have a right, a woman has a right to an abortion uh, up to about 23 or 24 weeks, so what's called viability, the point at which the fetus might 
be able to live um, on its own. Um, so 15 weeks cuts, cuts eight or nine weeks out of the current state of that constitutional right. It's basically saying, you know, you had a six-month constitutional right, now you, now you have a, a, a just under four-month constitutional right to abortion. Um, it would be very difficult for the court to uphold the Mississippi law without changing something. I don't think they have to overrule Roe versus Wade, but they have to redefine the way they are evaluating the right to abortion to do that. They have to say, um, you know, a, a woman's interest in, in, in the right to choose um, up to the point of viability is one constitutional value, but as you progress in pregnancy, the state ought to have a greater interest in the potential life of the fetus. And therefore, you know, at 15 weeks, it becomes more of a balancing act than, than previously thought at, at 24 weeks or something like, I mean, they'd have to, I don't know, they'd have to say something like that. Right. Um, the, the complicating factor, um, as, as I'm sure you've seen, is that basically nobody in their briefs in the Supreme Court defending the Mississippi law, nobody's really defending the Mississippi law. They're just telling the Supreme Court the time has come to overrule Roe versus Wade, including the state of Mississippi. Um, and I don't know how the Supreme Court's going to react to that. Um, uh, you know, one crazy possibility is that the Supreme Court says we're dismissing the case because none of you are addressing the issue that we agreed to decide. Um, I, I think that's a long shot, right. uh, but I don't think it's impossible. Um, you know, come come back, and there'll be plenty of other abortion cases that the court. Will will have the opportunity to decide if they let this one go. Um, so I, you know, but if the justices get past that problem, I don't think I, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't have the sense that they are sitting there ready to momentarily pounce on overruling Roe versus Wade, and I think that in part. Because I think a number of them, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, um, Chief Justice Roberts, um, are, are probably more amenable to taking a, a kind of slow, slow walk approach on, on overruling Roe versus Wade. Let's let's find a way to uphold the Mississippi regulation, and that cuts back on the right to abortion some. And the next case we get will be a different one and we'll try to uphold that regulation and cut back on the right to abortion some more. And, and it, so that it doesn't look like we're riding on a runaway freight train. Um, It's, it's, it's incredibly complex and there's, there's a lot of States now that are throwing up laws and I think they kind of ignore the science. They, they ignore, there's certain aspects that I think they ignore, um, you know, most of them have like a zero tolerance 
feel to it and they don't acknowledge the fact that there are, I think, certain circumstances where uh, my opinion is that a woman should have the right to an abortion in certain circumstances up to a certain point. Um, I, I think I read something somewhere that says you can be pro-choice and still kind of being against abortion. as, But it's one of those extremely hot-button topics. And I'm just, I was curious to see where you thought that was going to go. Um, I mean, it will be very divisive in the court. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, that, that I'll make that prediction safely. <laughs> One of the other things that I kind of read about that, that's kind of ramping in some circles is becoming a little more concerning is the, the shadow docket. Um, my understanding is it's something that's kind of been going on for years and or the length of the, or the life of the, the court. Um, the concerning thing is, you know, going through the, I think it was the, Bush and Obama administration, there was maybe eight emergency actions taken. And in Trump's, there were 41 applications. So clearly he ramped things up. Can you kind of go over what the shadow docket is and your thoughts on it being good or bad? So so you could divide what the Supreme Court does into two parts. The merits docket, which is what we've been talking about. That's you, you file your petition. The court agrees to hear your petition with at least four votes. The court schedules your case for oral argument. Uh, it hears an hour of argument. Um, tons of briefs are filed, raised, covering every conceivable aspect of the case. Uh, and then the justices write an opinion a few months later that lays out all of their reasoning for why they're deciding the case. That's the merits docket. They do that in about 55 cases a term, October to the end of June. Um, the shadow docket is, is, would, would previously have been called the emergency docket. Um, you're not, you, you haven't filed a full appeal to the Supreme Court. You're just going to the Supreme Court and saying something is about to happen and, and we need you to issue an order stopping it. Um, most notably, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll make two points. I mean, the emergency docket has existed in the context of the death penalty for 50 years. Right. Um, virtually every inmate who's facing execution, you know, at midnight, um, his lawyers file and request for a stay of execution at 9 p.m. or 7 p.m. or, or 3 in the afternoon. That's an emergency application. Please stop this execution because this inmate has a legitimate claim. There's new evidence of his innocence or his lawyer was, was a drunk and didn't represent him properly or uh, they just agreed to hear one. They just stopped an execution um, a, a week ago uh, in which the inmate said, I have a right to, to have a, a, a member of the clergy and, and my faith is one of these faiths where you lay on hands on the person. And I have a right to have a member of the clergy lay hands on me before I'm executed. And the court, the court took the emergency application, stopped the execution, and actually said, we're going to grant this as if it was a petition, and we're going to schedule the case for argument. So that's sort of jumping from the emergency docket to the shadow docket. I mean, 
one quick example, and then I'll get back to the current state of things. Um, my memory, I can't tell you exactly what year, but the late, very liberal Justice William O. Douglas, I believe, uh, issued an emergency order in late 1960s, early 1970s, stopping the Vietnam War. Really? The majority of the court overruled him immediately. <laughs> Um, but so there's always been an emergency docket. Right. The shadow docket concept is that we've moved from the emergency docket being a place where you literally said, hold things in place until we can figure out what's going on, um, but, but not actually issuing rulings that were making new law. That's the old image. The new image is that the court is issuing stay rulings or emergency rulings, stopping something or reinstating something. And, and it, it's making new law when it does that um, because of the nature of the issues in which it's ruling. And it does that without real explanation. I mean, a typical shadow docket decision is, you know, might be a four line order. The the, the request of the parties for an emergency stay is hereby granted, and the ruling of the U.S. Court of Appeals for wherever is stayed until further proceedings of this court. And you, you could just look at that and say, well, what does that mean? I don't know what this is about. But underlying that, you know, the Supreme Court just ruled in favor of churches not being covered by governor's COVID shutdown orders because it violates the church's freedom of religion. Um, and that's a very significant step without a full, without full briefing and argument and without even really an opinion explaining what they did. Right. Well, that's the controversy. Um, and it's continuing. Uh, I mean, the, the Texas abortion case, I don't know if we have, Time to talk about that, but definitely, um, the you know the, the the Supreme Court issued its ruling on the shadow docket in the Texas abortion case. Texas passed a law that that does two things: it says no abortions after the heartbeat can be heard by a doctor, and that's typically about six to seven weeks. Um, so so very early in pregnancy, many women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. Right. Seven weeks. Um, then the second thing is Texas said is the state of Texas is not going to enforce this law. The attorney general, the district attorneys are not, don't have any power to enforce this law. The law can be enforced by individuals, any individual doesn't even have to be a resident of Texas. Right. Any individual can file a lawsuit against a clinic, a doctor, um, a, a service that drives women to abortion clinics for for assisting in the performance of abortions, and they can win a $10,000 judgment. So the clinics tried to block the law, and a federal district court was prepared to hold a hearing and hear them. Uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals in New Orleans, what's called the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which covers Texas, um, issued an order telling the district court in Texas not to hold a hearing 
and not to and even entertain the case filed by the clinics. It basically said, pretend nothing has happened. Start from zero. There is no case. Um, and, and we're not going to block the law from going into effect. Um, and, and I can explain why in a minute. But the clinics came to the Supreme Court for an emergency application saying, don't let the law take effect until all this gets sorted out. Why? Because it's a clearly unconstitutional law. Right. In blocking abortions after six weeks, in the, in, I'm not talking about whether the Supreme Court may overrule Roe now. You judge the law under the current state of the constitutional right to abortion. There's no question that this violates the constitutional right to abortion. So how do you, as the Supreme Court, allow it to take effect? Well, what the the majority of the court, it was a five to four shadow docket ruling. The majority of the court issued about a 20 line statement that said this abort- these abortion clinics have sued the judges of the state courts in Texas on the theory that they're the ones who are going to enforce this law because when somebody files a lawsuit, it'll be in state court and the judges will have to be the one who, who, who go after the clinics or the doctors or, or whatever. And the Supreme Court said it's not clear that you can sue the state court judges. It's not clear that they are going to enforce this law. And so we don't have a valid case in front of us in which to grant an emergency order. But Chief Justice Roberts, in a, in a dissenting opinion, said that might be true but the proper thing to do then is to issue a stay that keeps the law from going into effect until the courts can sort this out right it's a clearly unconstitutional law um why would you let it take effect over the question of who can sue and not wait and try to sort that out in a proper case i think the other unique thing that came out of that uh, that law is the fact that it's it's empowering the citizens to enforce it. Right. It's not it's not the uh, a power of the state to enforce it. Right. And to turn it on its head a little bit, if the Democrats were to ever make a, a law similar to this that says somebody can go and just something similar to dealing with gun laws and saying that if you have a gun, I can sue you because I don't think you should have a gun. I know that's kind of extreme circumstance, but I think that law, if it's not squashed, kind of opens Pandora's box to a lot of different nasty tit for tat. And the way the climate's been politically over the last eight to 12 years, you know, the, the level of insanity and lack of common sense, lack of, accepting science and reason uh, it, to me, it just seems like a very, very bad path to go down. Right. I mean, I think this is just, this is not law. It's partisan politics passing as law. Right. If the Democrats passed the same law in a way that was designed to prevent gun rights, the Republicans would scream bloody murder. Right. Um, and you don't have any right to do that, and it's patently unconstitutional. Um, you know, it's it's just not the way 
our laws ought to be enforced. And, and I would say that regardless of whether it's a law I like or dislike. Um, and But for the court to allow it to go into effect instead of holding it up, pending sorting out this process, right. I, I think was, was very dubious and so has called renewed attention to the shadow docket. Got it. Well, I appreciate all the information you just kicked out to me. Um, I'm going to tighten things up real quick with three quick, fun questions, hopefully, that we can leave on a, on a, on a good note. Uh, first question. Would you rather be a museum curator or a librarian for a year? I'd love to be a museum curator. I agree. I'm a huge fan of history and just be able to kind of walk through and pick what kind of things are on display it fascinates me i'm a big fan of uh of the met up here up north of me in new york yep. and you know the smithsonian i went down there with my kids a number of years ago i need to get back down there and, and look at all those fun museums down there <laughs> i mean i've seen incredible exhibits like civil rights exhibits there's a there's a museum in memphis where martin luther king was assassinated in the lorraine motel it has sort of recreations of like the bus that Rosa Parks got on or the lunch counter that civil rights demonstrators sat at. And I, I just think that's amazing. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of preserving history. <laughs> I'm um, with you. <laughs> would you rather be have telepathy or telekinesis? Mm. <laughs> I don't know that I have an answer to that one. <laughs> I, the telepathy is uh, appealing, but I'd rather, I think, have telekinesis just because I like to play jokes on people, and that would definitely work in that avenue. <laughs> All right, I'll go with you there. <laughs> and the last question, are you a fan of Granny Smith apples or Golden Deli uh, Red Delicious apples? Ooh, um, probably Red and Delicious. I'm a Granny Smith guy. I like the sweetness and tartness to them. But uh, <laughs> um, again, thank you very, very much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Um, I'm uh, fascinated with everything you just told me. So again, thank you very much and have a good night. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.